0: Welcome to Column and Culture, the podcast where we explore the intersections of race, religion, and more. My passion lies in understanding how we interact with the world and how the world interacts with us. Through this podcast, I want to foster a space for learning and sharing, as well as explore the ever-evolving dynamics that shape our global society. I truly believe that our diverse stories and shared wisdom can help us navigate our interconnected world. I'm your host, Sabrina Inayatullah. Thanks for being here. Welcome to today's episode of Column and Culture. Previously, we explored the Hussein McMahon correspondence. We will do a brief overview of the Hussein McMahon correspondence, but for a comprehensive understanding, check out our last episode. Continuing from that discussion, we delve into the Sykes Picot Agreement, a secret treaty that played a pivotal role in shaping the Middle East. Why was this treaty kept hidden, and what were the motivations driving it? We will unravel the story behind this clandestine treaty and shed light on the global powers and architects involved and the impact of their decisions. So let's recap. The time is World War I and the discovery of oil in the Middle East shortly before World War I significantly increased the region's importance as oil became its global currency. The two sides during this war were team allies with key players Britain and France and team central powers with key players the Ottoman Empire and Germany. A promise was made through a series of letters between the British High Commissioner of Egypt, Sir Henry McMahon, and Sharif Hussein of Mecca. His title Sharif could be likened to that of a modern-day governor. So these letters became known as the Hussein McMahon Correspondence, and through this correspondence, the British promised the Arabs a large area of land that included parts of the Arabian Peninsula in exchange for an Arab rebellion against the Ottoman Empire, which the British would back. Hussein leads this Arab uprising And thus, the Hussein McMahon correspondence becomes the catalyst for the Arab revolt. During the period that Hussein and McMahon were corresponding, Britain and France were also having a conversation. They were in secret talks, which resulted in the Sykes-Picot Agreement, which we are talking about today. Russia was also involved in these conversations, And we will get to that in a minute. Now, why was the Sykes-Picot agreement a secret? Well, Britain's teammate France was not happy with the boundaries Britain proposed to the Arabs in the Hussein McMahon correspondence. And since Britain and France are on the same team, Britain has to appease France. Britain redraws the boundaries of the territories originally promised. And the Arabs are then offered some independence in Syria and Iraq, though Syria would be under French control and Iraq would be under British control. These controlled areas by Western powers were known as protectorates. On one hand, protectorate has the word protect in it, which sounds like a good thing. However, a protectorate basically means that a dominant power, in this case Britain or France, has control over an Arab territory while allowing some internal autonomy To the native populations. A protectorate is sort of like living at home in your 20s. You have some autonomy, but you are always aware of who you answer to. After the Arab uprising, which was a direct result of the Hussein McMahon correspondence, the Ottoman Empire experienced sudden destabilization and fragmentation of Ottoman territories. With the Ottoman Empire weakened, a post-Ottoman political power vacuum emerges. A political power vacuum means there is a temporary gap in leadership and there's no single authority, like a person or a group that is in charge of making decisions or organizing things. This is exactly what Britain and France want, because manufactured destabilization in the region would position France and Britain to get more control in the Middle East. I like to look at the secret planning and plotting that eventually became the Sykes-Picot Agreement as... Britain and France collaborating on a vision board for a wedding. (laughs) Each is cutting out pictures of wedding dresses, which represent Ottoman territories, and pinning them to their vision board. Britain and France meticulously plan which dresses... Or territories they desire, they strategize how to acquire them, and tailor the borders to fit their aspirations. During these talks, France and Britain realize they need to include their teammate Russia. This is all happening pre-internet, and there is no share button. The only way for France and Britain to share their vision board with Russia is to go to Russia. So they go to Petrograd, which is modern-day St. Petersburg, in the spring of, 1916. On the British side was Sir Mark Sykes, a diplomat and politician and military officer who played a key role in the negotiations and actually died soon after in the influenza pandemic of 1918. On the French side was François Georges Picot, a French diplomat with a legal background, he was instrumental in precisely defining the zones of influence that were outlined in the Sykes-Picot agreement. And on the Russian side was Sergei Sazanov the Russian foreign minister, who agreed to the Sykes-Picot Agreement on behalf of Russia, but later had second thoughts. We will talk about that in a minute. So there were a few different iterations of which territories everyone would get, and there were some more agreements put in place between Russia and France. Ultimately, It was decided that the Ottoman territories would be divided to look something like this. Russia would get Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul in Turkey, and they would secure the Gallipoli Peninsula, which is more than half of the European section of Turkey. Russia would also secure the Dardanelles, which is a narrow strait of water that connects the Aegean Sea to the Sea of Marmara. This was a key maritime passage for Russia geographically because they needed easy access to the Black Sea. France really wanted to strengthen its influence in the Levant region, which includes modern-day Lebanon and Syria. Its presence there had grown substantially from the 19th century onward. The French had sent missionaries to the Levant region to establish schools and hospitals because they wanted to spread French language and culture throughout the region. Britain claimed several territories, including Persia, which is modern-day Iran, and Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. This was a big pickup for the British due to the oil-rich nature of both regions. The Sykes-Picot Agreement granted Britain control over the Mediterranean and the Suez Canal, which was crucial for maintaining links to British colonies in India and the Far East. Additionally, Britain would also gain control of historic Palestine. Remember, that's modern-day Israel, which became a state in 1948, and the occupied Palestinian territories. So why do we use terms like historic Palestine, modern-day Israel, and occupied Palestine. When examining the historical context of World War I, scholars of the region, along with the language used in treaties and agreements and labels on maps, all refer to the region as Palestine. The term Palestine has roots in classical antiquity. For context, classical antiquity is when the Greeks and Romans had empires and dates to the 8th century BCE, which is before Common Era. The modern state of Israel, as we know it today, was established in 1948, while occupied Palestine refers to territories such as Gaza and the West Bank, where Palestinian Arabs live under Israeli military control. I will refer to the region before Israel's establishment, in 1948 as Historic Palestine. During World War I, Historic Palestine was inhabited by a majority Muslim population with a significant Christian presence and a few thousand Jewish settlers. While the British would get control over Historic Palestine, via the Sykes-Picot Agreement, Jerusalem would be designated as international territory. This decision was aimed at preserving the city's sanctity as a holy site. Based on how Team Allies is carving up the Ottoman territories, we are starting to see how imperialist ambitions and goals are driven by a mix of strategic, economic, and political objectives. I like to think of this mix as a snack mix which colonizers love to eat, and I call this snack RET mix. R-E-T mix. RET is an acronym. The R stands for resource extraction, the E stands for empire building, And the T stands for Trade Routes and Mobility. And Team Allies is snacking on that RETMIX to achieve its objectives. RETMIX is, of course, not a real snack, but if it was, I imagine the commercial for it would be something like, satisfy your imperial appetite with RETMIX, the go-to snack for colonizers everywhere. With Russia, France, and Britain from Team Allies, satisfied with the dresses they've pinned to their vision board, meaning how the Ottoman territories would be carved up, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, officially known as the Asia Minor Agreement, is a done deal. It was signed on May 16, 1916. According to Spencer C. Tucker, a military and war historian, the signing and implementation of the Sykes-Picot Agreement meant that self-determination in the Middle East was rejected. Russia initially supported the Sykes-Picot Agreement, but Foreign Minister Sergei Sazanov becomes skeptical and critical of the Sykes-Picot Agreement and its provisions. Sazanov was worried that this clandestine treaty was going to have ill effects on Russia's influence in the region down the road. Eventually, he resigned as the Russian Foreign Minister in July of 1916, only two months after the Sykes-Picot Agreement is signed. As a part of team allies, Russia had engaged in several major battles during World War I. But the Russians had a lot of setbacks early in the war. And these setbacks put a real strain on Russia's economy, on its military and its infrastructure. And this led to significant casualties and hardships, not only for the Russian military, but also for the civilian population in Russia. The pressures of World War I became a critical factor that led to the Russian Revolution. In 1917, one year before the war ends, Russia experiences two revolutions in one calendar year. The first one happens in February of 1917. At this time... Tsar Nicholas II was in power, the Russian economy is not doing well, the civilian population is being affected, and there were food shortages in Russia and general dissatisfaction with how the war was being managed. Nicholas II is overthrown. A provisional government is established, and their goal is to continue Russia's participation in World War I. But the country is still really struggling. In October of the same year, the Bolsheviks seize power from this provisional government in a coup, and the world's first communist state is born. It's called this is a mouthful, the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, the RSFSR. This is a really important time in history because the Bolshevik Revolution altered global politics. It gave rise to the Soviet Union or the USSR that many of us are familiar with or have at least heard something about. The United States and the Soviet Union, entered into a rivalry during the Cold War. And when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in 1979, the United States became involved in supporting anti-Soviet Afghan Mujahideen fighters through a number of covert operations. The United States gave the Mujahideen weapons to contain Soviet influence and communism during the Cold War. The Bolshevik Revolution shaped a lot of 20th and 21st century conflicts. So it's 1917 and the Bolsheviks are now in power in Russia. And guess what they find? The text of the Sykes-Picot Agreement. And what do they do with it? They released the text into the wild. They leaked the tapes. So, Russia is already having a hard time during World War I. Then it experiences its own double revolution within one year, but they have already secured Constantinople. Remember, that's modern day Istanbul via the Sykes Picot Agreement. So, at this point, there's no real reason for Russia to continue in the war. Russia needs a mental health day. They need to leave the group chat, and so they do. Russia, with the Bolsheviks in power, withdraw from World War I. Now, when the Bolsheviks released this text of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, this causes a lot of controversy and embarrassment for the British and the French, and it significantly undermined Arab trust in team allies because the Sykes-Picot Agreement contradicted the promises made to Arab leaders about their post-war independence and sovereignty. Almost simultaneously, the Arabs learn about the Balfour Declaration, which we will get to in a minute and will be the focus of our next episode. When the Arabs find out about the secretive Sykes-Picot Agreement, so do the Italians. Italy was, Also on team allies, but they were not included in the negotiations. Remember, that was a conversation between Britain, France, and Russia. Italy is like, hey, no fair. We want a wedding dress too. We also want some of the Ottoman territories. As politics go, there are more negotiations and different agreements that are signed, and Eventually, Italy would receive a large part of Turkish land, particularly where there was an Italian population in southern Anatolia, close to the border of Persia, which is modern day Iran, and a sphere of influence in the northern part of Smyrna on the western side of Turkey. This area is modern day Izmir. Everyone seems to be getting what they want. However, the post-war reality and aftermath of the Sykes-Picot Agreement was quite different, the French faced challenges in the Levant region due to its diverse population, including Muslims, both Shia and Sunni, various Christian denominations, and Jews. The challenges were not because of ethnic or sectarian violence, but ultimately, the Druze ethnic minority revolted against the French after World War One in the Great Syrian Revolt of 1920. Remember, the French had a goal of spreading French language and French culture, and this diverse area of the Levant was not having it. They wanted to remove French control that had been imposed by the mandate authorities, and the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Italy got some territorial gains in Turkey, as we just mentioned. However, Italy faced problems due to geopolitical changes, such as tensions between Greek and Turkish national movements and Turkish resistance led by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who later went on to become the first president of the Republic of Turkey. After several treaties, Italy renounced its claim to the Turkish territory. They were like, forget about it, back to my maranara. And they just cut their losses and left. As we can see, a post-Sykes-Picot Agreement world is not panning out the way Britain and France expected. And things come to a head in 1919 at the Paris Peace Conference, which is being held to officially end World War I and we will talk about that in a minute. Here, Britain and France are having disagreements as to which territories would come under their control. Representatives from France, Britain, and Italy are present at the Paris Peace Conference, as is the United States. President Woodrow Wilson tries to be diplomatic and he basically says self-determination is the most important thing and everyone should get their own wedding dress. According to military historian Spencer C. Tucker, Woodrow Wilson is sort of challenged on this point of the right to self-determination by British Prime Minister David Lloyd George, who says if everyone deserves self-determination, then shouldn't that apply to the Arabs as well? Immediately, Wilson backtracks. He's like, well, when I said everyone has the right to self-determination, I meant the United States and Europe. World War I lasted from 1914 to 1918, and the Treaty of Versailles, which officially ends World War I, is signed in 1919 at the Paris Peace Conference. Team allies are declared winners of the war, and on team central powers, the Treaty of Versailles imposed significant penalties and territorial changes on Germany, and the Ottoman Empire basically dismantled and becomes modern-day Turkey in 1922. The territorial disputes between Britain and France are not resolved at the Paris Peace Conference. But the following year, in January of 1920, the League of Nations is formed. In November, 41 countries come together and they meet in Geneva, Switzerland. At this meeting, the League of Nations grants France and Britain mandates over the territories that they wanted, which is really convenient given that France and Britain were two of the founding members of the League of Nations. This is essentially the equivalent of the most toxic employee at your workplace running a meeting on creating healthy office culture. The official stance of the League of Nations was to resolve international disputes, but it was really a way to establish and award Britain and France mandates over former Ottoman territories under the guise of preparing these territories for independence. The Sykes-Picot Agreement is frequently highlighted as a factor contributing to violence in the Middle East. The collapse of the Ottoman Empire that was manufactured by the British established new states. This resulted in a fragmented Arab world, with some areas under European colonial control and others governed by local monarchs or leaders, the promise of a unified Arab state covering all Arab-speaking territories never materialized. World War One was pre-nation state. This was still a time of monarchies and kingdoms. There was no real concept of division based on national borders in the Middle East. Up until World War I, the region was largely controlled by the Ottoman Empire, which was a multi-ethnic, multi-religious empire ruled by a monarchy. The Sykes-Picot Agreement also had A lasting impact on the Kurdish population and their quest for autonomy and statehood. Because this agreement divided Kurdish inhabited areas among several countries, primarily Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. Despite the Arab revolt, the Arabian Peninsula didn't see the formation of a unified kingdom as Hussein envisioned. Instead, It witnessed the emergence of several independent kingdoms and states, such as the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, established by Abdul Aziz ibn Saud. Other regions gained independence or fell under the influence of local rulers, including Yemen, Oman, and the future territories of the United Arab Emirates. The imperialist and colonialist actions of the British and French in carving up The Ottoman territories and establishing mandates in the region did cause a lot of problems, and so has continued Western involvement in the region, including military interventions, support for authoritarian regimes that emerged, and economic exploitation. The United States has also played a significant role in the destabilization of the Middle East since the end of World War I. Even now, the United States, which was established by the same British colonial powers that we have been talking about has something to gain from state fragility in the Arab world. And this has further fueled resentment and instability in the region. As we can see, history is a carefully woven web by multiple actors who all love that red mix. Author and scholar Mahmoud Mamdani, who specializes in colonialism, post-colonial development, and the politics of knowledge production, says Europeans are seen as being modern and that any space in which there is political violence, is attributed to the absence of modernity without understanding the systemic errors put in place by outside powers. This is something we will talk more about in future episodes when we discuss Orientalism. While the British and French were the primary negotiators during the Sykes-Picot Agreement, with Russia giving the go-ahead, one figure who was significant in these conversations was a man by the name of Chaim Weizmann, a leader of the Zionist movement, which was a political movement that existed in Europe for about 20 years leading up to World War I. Weizmann was not the founder of this movement, a man named Theodor Herzl was, but Weizmann's participation in the Sykes-Picot Agreement led to the Balfour Declaration, which was a public declaration by the British Empire to support a home for the Jewish people in historic Palestine. By the end of World War One. And in the immediate years after the war, things in the Arab world are really starting to shake up. I hope today's episode helped all of us better understand the Sykes-Picot Agreement and how it effectively denied Arab independence and control over its own territories. Whether this topic was new to you or a revisited subject, I hope it's been enlightening. Stay tuned for more insights in our next episode, where we will jump into the Balfour Declaration and the origins of the Zionist movement, and their ongoing significance in shaping the Middle East. Special thanks to author Melissa Sarno for playing the voice of Italy in this episode. Be sure to check out Melissa's middle grade novels. For more information, visit melissasarno.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Column and Culture. I'm your host, Sabrina Inayatula. As always, stay curious. See you next time.